This is Secrets to Win Big, your roadmap to sustained growth. Brought to you by Arjun Sen, founder and CEO of Zen Mango, brand whisperer, top brand growth driver, and a former Fortune 500 executive who has been called one of the most marketing intelligent minds in the business. Find him at zenmango.com. And now, here's your host, Arjun Sen. Hi, welcome to Secrets to Win Big with Arjun Sen. This is Arjun, and it's truly a pleasure to welcome you to this episode of Secrets to Win Big. You know, winning is fun, but winning big puts you on the path to sustainable long-term wins. And here you hear from leaders from all walks of life to share different paths. Today, my true honor is to have Tom Ryan as my VIP guest. Tom is the founder of Smashburger. Based on his formal education, Tom is a pure food scientist who went all the way to get a PhD. But then in Tom's professional career, which is full of mega impacts, he had key development roles starting at Procter & Gamble and Pillsbury. From there, from product packaged goods, he went to restaurants where he joined Pizza Hut in late 1980s and quickly brought very iconic products which all of you even today know and love. And love I use intentionally because the lover's line started under Tom's guidance and leadership and went on to Sicilian pizza, stuffed crust pizza, and Brie brought all of these to the marketplace. But Tom just didn't stop there. Next, as CMO and worldwide chief concept officer at McDonald's, he and his team brought McFlurries, Dollar Menus, McGriddles to the marketplace, but this time at a bigger scale, not just in US, but around the world. In 2006, Tom partnered with Rick Shadden to set out to build Smashburger, which has become been named twice as Forbes, America's most promising company. Tom is also the founder of Tom's Urban and Tom's Watch Bar, a full-service urban concept designed to provide great multi-ethnic food, craft beers, and cocktails. Welcome, Tom. Truly an honor. It is great to be here, Arjun. Thanks for having me. So, Tom, you know, your fascinating journey starts with you being a food scientist and then you go into packaged goods at Procter & Gamble. So how did the Procter & Gamble experience get you ready for the future restaurants and the big impact you've had? You know, it was an interesting experience going from grad school where you were in control of your own timing and destiny. It was really great. The great experience at Procter was to get into a, uh, a company that really valued technical innovations, functional tech, technical informations uh, innovations, and then apply them with a lot of regimen and discipline um, to make sure that their products had a high high level of performance. So it was a really great first step to go to make a transition from an academic environment to a business environment. But for me personally, it had some limitations. I, you know, it, it was all about function, no form, and it was really tough in that day to be creative because the innovation around technical attributes be it removing grease or be it more flavor of coffee, those things were drive already present, were already driving a lot of the tech, technical approaches. And so I found myself wishing, wishing, and hoping, hoping, and looking for opportunities to get closer to the consumer where 
I could find a better balance between function, which is hugely important, and form, which is what really motivates people's choices, desires, um, and, and basically makes them um, really interested in product development. So help me understand a little bit more, Tom. This is so fascinating about function and form. How does function and form, form influence choices? Well, I'll give you a great example from back in those days. Um, one of the key projects I worked on at, at Procter & Gamble was the Duncan Hines cookies, which were the soft and chewy cookies. And it was amazing. I, you know, this is my, my first real scintilla that there was something that needed to get scratched that I wasn't going to get taken care of at Procter was when I compared our advertising, our major competitor was Keebler and we were showing chocolate chips point onto a scale <laughs> demonstrating that we had more and Keebler had Ernie the elf in a tree with <laughs> wraps of beautiful cookie aroma. And it just spoke to the fact that for function without aesthetic <laughs> is lost on people who don't have an aesthetic value in their life. And to me, what I was seeing emerge even in those early days in the late eighties, there was this tremendous um, underlying growth of, of, uh, of, the Ameri of American consumers taking on the need for much more aesthetic value, eye candy, taste innovation, all the things that really set up the path for restaurants to be what they, what they became, which is the preferred way to eat and all the great creativity around that and other products that can apply that to themselves. So really it was that, it, that's really the balance between form and function. It, it, what I saw was um, you had to have pure high integrity functionality in everything you do. Products have to perform. But in the absence of the story and the imagery that makes those things uber attractive, that pays off that function, I think it's a lost cause. And so, you know, that was one of my major reasons for cutting my teeth at Procter & Gamble mm -hmm. and then in a decision to go someplace else. And, you know, you have a very rare combination of experience because if you look at 1980s, 90s, until, you know, early 2000, most of us in the industry, either we were schooled in the PepsiCo way or the Procter & Gamble way. And that's where we always went back to the core and you have both unique learnings together. Of course, at you know, PepsiCo, you came in at a higher level to make contributions right away. So I just want to look at, you know, there's not just one, because, you know, if there was one success, Tom, it's luck. But again, for you, there's a pattern of success from stuffed pizza to Sicilian crust to McDonald's everywhere. So two questions is, how do you see a market opportunity and then how do you find the right product? Like, how do you know you're pushed enough to reach critical mass? Yeah. Well, I, th I, think the, I think the first, the answer to your first question is how do you find the opportunity? I think there's several really strong ways to see it. Um, some of them are obvious and some of them you have to be a little bit more intuitive. And I think one of the unique elements that I have is I have a fairly large intuitive attribute in my, in my psyche that helps me. But, but I do think this that I think um, consumer demand, and quite frankly, in my opinion, consumer complacency, which is really latent demand, is the best way to look at the marketplace and understand where are there things that haven't been done yet. And, and the telltale signs of that is when you see entire categories starting to act like each other and blunt each other and do try to take away people's advantage by doing the same thing, Mm -hmm. that, that, makes, that makes a ton of sense from a product portfolio approach to your business. But at the same time, 
think about it from what it does to consumers. It gives them um, it gives them mass market options that are generally indistinguishable indistinguishable from each other. And so, and, it, and it's kind of a natural cycle, and especially in the U.S. mass market, that people spend more time blunting each other than trying to figure out how to do something unique and different. So I think that's that's the easiest answer for how you see the opportunity. And then sometimes competitors drive you there. I mean, to be honest with you, it's a little bit of a balance. Um, one of the products that I that I think is a fascinating story, we'll tell some other time. I did a product at at Pizza Hut called Bigfoot Pizza, and it was designed to basically take away the advantage of Little Caesars Pizza Pizza by basically giving people more pizza at the same price, but but formatted in a different way that would probably make um, a side-by-side -side comparison uh, an advantage to, to, to Pizza Hut at the time doing Bigfoot. Um, and that was, you know, that insight, that aha moment to get to that product design um, and then the following attributes that made it taste great, et cetera, that was driven not by an intuitive sense. It was not driven by... Um, understanding um, uh, an unmet consumer need. It was looking at a competitor who was finding traction in the marketplace and then doing what I call one-upping them, is finding a better way to execute their core strength with a meaningful difference for consumers. Not a copycat um, meaningful difference, but a really unique meaningful difference. And in a value game, it's more, right? It's, it's great tasting stuff, but give people more of it. So that's probably those are probably the two Biggest dynamics, I would say, as you know, as I look at blank pages in certain categories, um, I always look at what's there and how happy and how consistent is that across the marketplace and what's not there that could be a big idea to explore. The second part of your question is how do you manage that? Um, you know, I was fortunate enough early in my career um, at Pizza Hut to adopt a, a process from my mentor, one of my mentors, who really did a great job. Um, using heavy category users of specific product categories mm -hmm. to really understand what motivates them and then to bounce ideas off them in a very iterative way. So you weren't doing thumbs up, thumbs down analysis. You were kind of guiding your way to find the target. And then once mm -hmm. you found the target, the emotional target, the, the purchase behavior based target, then we went at optimizing attributes really great, really greatly. So whether it was taste or appearance or even value, we worked really hard on those things to bring all three of those dimensions together. And when you do that, guided by what consumers think are, are really interesting, different, and at the same time, equally or more relevant, that's where you come up with big wins. Wow. So to me, this was so fascinating for you to help me see that the first, you trust your intuitive attribute, your psyche about the opportunities, then, you're also showing me and showing all of us that one of the places we need to avoid is stop spending time in blunting each other because you're not moving anything there. And then you connect to the unmet consumer needs, but the need is met, as you talked about, is a meaningful difference as seen by guests. I think that's very powerful. That yeah, leads me, yeah, sorry, go ahead, please. Once you establish that target, you know, to me, I, I always say this to people, because they ask me, you know, oh, you're an inventor. And, it's, and I actually think of myself more as an innovator. And I think the difference is this. Invention is creating things. And some of those things um, have purpose and some of them don't have, have equal, differing levels of purpose. Innovation is creating things with a purpose. And so at the heart of everything I've ever done that's been highly successful, whether it's stuffed crust pizza or McGriddles or the Smashburger brand or anything else we want to talk about, 
um, what was in its, what was in the core of that idea. Okay. Mm -hmm. What was the notion um, that we had a point of view that consumers found interesting, relevant, and motivating. Um, and, and to me, we've fleshed everything out around it, but at the end of the day, um, that's what true innovation is. It's invention with purpose. And if that purpose is to re-evolve re something that already exists for somebody in a meaningful way, mm -hmm. big wins, big wins. Awesome. So you're listening to Secrets to Win Big with Arjun Sen, and my VIP guest today is Tom Ryan, founder of Smashburger. And if I use three words to describe him, he is literally a new product magician. And I love the way, Tom, you use simple terms. You look at what is there, but people are not happy. And what is not there, if you bring to the marketplace, people will be happy. And you define innovation as creation with a purpose. Instead of inventing, could be just random creation. So now let's go back to 2007. You know, at that point of time, Americans were eating a lot of burger, like ballpark. I was doing, you know, Googling to show my Google skills that people on an average were eating seven burgers a week. Okay. From a layman's point of view, we didn't need another burger place. Like, what made you see the opportunity and exactly like followed the whole path to create this new brand? Yeah. You know, in the last 15 years, I've probably answered this question more than anything else because everybody wants to know. You're right. I mean, burgers back in 2007 were a $100 billion category in and of themselves and generally um, owned by the three big brands, one of which I worked for, you know, McDonald's, Burger King, and Wendy's. And, and I had a sense, me and my team back in the early 2000s had a sense that something wasn't as relevant with the core of McDonald's as it could have been, which is namely burgers. And we went out and it was, and we were seeing our sales go up, but we were seeing our loyalty scores go down. You know, at the end of the day, I am a scientist and I do look at data. And I found that that relationship was quite amazing. And when we went and probed on that, what we found was um, people were buying our burgers, but they were very dispassionate about those about those burgers. And sometimes a consumer, I've had this happen maybe 10 times in my life, but sometimes a consumer, when you're behind the glass, says something that you never forget. And I remember, I think I was in someplace in the Midwest and a woman said, we were asking, okay, so if all burgers are the same, what makes you make the decisions you make? And she said, if I'm driving down the street, if one brand is on the right and one hand's on the left, I take the right hand turn because it's easier. And I thought, here we are, a 20 billion market cap company um, with our core historic heritage equity based on a right or left hand turn. So when we studied that a little more, what we found out was that Americans, you know, all for good purposes over the years, we had commoditized burgers, made them fast, made them cheap, made them convenient to get at the expense of what I would call, you know, key mosaics in a modern architecture, which is quality, integrity, and the ability to tell stories that resonate with people. I call that dynamic, the sales up and the loyalty down. I call that the latent demand of, satis of dissatisfaction. And I believed in that strongly. And I got others to believe in that strongly because everybody said, we don't need another burger place. And I said, if you knew what I knew, mm -hmm. by the way, an answer to an answer question later, what I love when I wake up in the morning is thinking about what I know that nobody else knows that we can take advantage of. But anyway, I felt that way for years. And I finally, I had to leave McDonald's to actually um, act on it. And that's when I met Rick in 2000. I moved to Denver in 2003. 
helped him do some things at Quiznos, which I'm rather proud of. But then we wanted to, we wanted to build disruptive brands that would redefine existing categories. Um, and, and Smashburger was the first of those. So we actually lived, we, we practiced the craft of making sure that we were going to be unique and different in key attributes, but only those that consumers really cared, cared about, taste, quality, richness, appearance. Um, and we built the entire Smashburger brand on having key points of differentiation that people could get passionate about instead of just acquiesce to. And that amalgam of attributes, whether it was Haagen-Dazs in the shakes, whether it was certified Angus beef and our smashing technique and our proprietary seasoning, artisan buns, proprietary sauces, you name it. There's a whole litany. There's 50 things I could tell you about Smashburger that made it special. But all of those things came to the table and the fore. Mm-hmm. in order to have a highly differentiated concepts that consumers would appreciate at every turn. So I think just listening to you describe the Smashburger burgers gets me hungry. <laughs> so let's just walk away from food for a second. Sure. And, you know, if you take your experience and everything you've talked about, I'm already seeing that any one of us, you know, all of us who are listening who are not in restaurants, there's so many nuggets to use. So what would be a few nuggets for, of advice for those who are in new product development and brand development, but not in restaurants? What would be our advice to them? You know, I, I really think the key is, you know, look, the title of this series is, 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 is Big Wins. And I, I really think um, that there are certain categories to work in where you can really do like exceptional innovation, particularly around things like technology and medicine um, and those things are, are really important. But in the main, in consumer goods, which I only, I only want to express things that I'm really comfortable with, which is really the consumer side of things, mm-hmm. I think the best, and a lot of people get distracted by this one thing, you have to focus on heavy category users. The bigness of ideas is a function of the bigness of the categories in consumer goods. And to be honest with you, my personal belief, it's not a rule or a law, my personal belief is that Consumers are very slow to adopt radically new things unless they enable technology, medicine, things like that. But in the world of like, let's talk about it, in the world of fashion, in the world of packaged goods, in the worlds of restaurant, in the worlds of cars, whatever other disposable, you know, everyday, not, maybe not everyday, but lifetime um, purchases you make, the key to success, to be big, mm-hmm. is to focus on how do you make heavy category users intrinsically happier than they are now? And just the sheer scope of where you spend your time hedges your bet that you're going to be a working on things that have a meaningful difference to many more people and B there's a lot of them to talk to. There's a lot of them to study. There's a lot of them to see. So, so I think that that's a big piece of advice that that goes outside the restaurant category. And I, I, I distill it down to this. If you're not focusing on heavy category users, you're not focusing on the right thing. So, as we start going, looking at, you know, I'm just reflecting on your career where you have had, you know, you led marketing organizations, then you led global organizations. And then as a founder, you put right teams in place. What are some of the traits that you look at, which are most important for future leaders in organizations where you're placing them? Yeah, great question. I, I believe in three things that make for successful organizations. I believe in process, I believe in talent, and I believe in structure. 
And so if you have those things right and they ladder up to what you're trying to achieve, generally you win. <laughs> As it relates to people and hiring, um, you know, I look for three things in no particular order, but they're all very important. I love people with passion. People are willing to go the extra distance to think harder, to think outside the box. Well, however you want to define personal passion, for some people it's just doing the same thing better than anybody else. For some people it's doing things different. But passion counts. Personal integrity is a ton. And then raw ta and then talent, that you can actually put together a structure of multidimensional talent to get things done because no one wins alone. So I think, you know, when I interview people at the CEO level, or even now, or I have to assess partners, you know, I always look for, for how these people, how their passion, how their integrity, and how their talent fits into a well-designed process, talent, and structure that gets things done. So how do you difference, what's the difference to you between process and structure? So process is, so it's, it's a great question. So process is the way you do things. Mm -hmm. they, they basically give you um, paradigmic um, internal standards to work against. Mm -hmm. um, so I, as an example, I have a new product process that I use for everything as big as a, as a concept down to an individual product that basically um, involves um, recruiting heavy category users and bouncing ideas off of them and using them iteratively to fine tune ideas. That's a process. Mm -hmm. it's a, it, it is a great process. If the people listening to the outcome of that aren't the right people or all the same people, then that process gets applied to a structure that doesn't know how to take that outcome and do things with it. Mm -hmm. And so, the, so a process is how you look at things, how you manage things, how you meter and how you read things um, that are essential to what you're trying to get done, whether it's analytics, financial analytics, whether it's creative processes, doesn't really matter. And structure makes sure that you have the roundness and fullness of team so that there's enough people to carry the baton on the front end and there's enough people to close with success on the back end. But those, and by the way, certain processes are relevant for certain parts of that structure and certain processes aren't. So, it, you know, it is, a, it is an organic process. And, you know, every company who, who I've ever had great success was had a great, knowledge, had a great sense of how to use that, those two things, three things actually effectively. I love that. Process, talent, and structure. I love the definition, the roundness and fullness of a team to build them together. In this journey of talking to leaders, one of the things I see is with every leader, they all want to act. Of course, they have a process, they think. And when they act, there's a decent amount of stubbornness. Once the train leaves the station, they have to get to the goal. And which means, you know, a lot of them start taking words out of the dictionary. Like for athletes I've talked to, they just say no does not exist. What are a few words or phrases that doesn't exist in Tom Ryan's dictionary? Mediocrity is an easy one. Mm -hmm. um, consensus is mm -hmm. an easy one. Um, as I already mentioned, blunting is an easy one. Mm -hmm. I, I, think, I think the key words that, that are missing are things that would speak to, in my vocabulary, are things that would speak to complacency mm -hmm. and settling. I never settle. Um, and even when we have a big success, I always ask myself, what's next? Mm -hmm. How do we build on that? Where do you take that? Because, you know, I, I kind of look at developing things in general 
as a, it's like a movie. It's, it's got to be, I've never talked to a movie producer. I would love to, but it's got to be like a movie. And every movie producer, mm-hmm. I'm sure, watches their product mm-hmm. and then covers their eyes on certain scenes and says, man, would I like to do that different? I feel that way about everything I do. Mm-hmm. So I, I think, um, you know, it's not a word that I could omit, but a word that I like is like constantly challenging ourselves mm-hmm. to, take, to take things to the, never le- to the next level. I think really, next leveling is really key in the market these days. I really love the first two words that you said doesn't exist is mediocre and seeking consensus. And I just feel they are so well connected that so many of us in the process of getting consensus, the train or the plane leaves and we are still standing on where we are. And of course, when you talked about a film producer, I just have to give a little shout out for my baby brother in India. Oni, he produced this documentary and he is a perfectionist. It's called Asur, A-S-U-R. And recently we were looking at reviews where this is being recognized as the number one over other Netflix to other productions, but it's the margin of win. It's getting 65% of votes, whereas others are not even in teens. Of course, I'm biased. Maybe they're in teens, okay? But I just wanted to throw a shout out for my baby brother. Poor guy is sleeping right now. When he wakes up, he'll hear and be very proud. Yeah. So coming to something more serious right now, you know, with COVID-19, things are, you know, none of us know what's going on. So what's your secret to succeed during these times? How are you helping brands during these times? Well, I, you know, I think every brand has their own set of circumstances. I, I, I do think this. I do think one of the keys to success is just to be kind. Mm-hmm. Um, be as kind as you can in whatever circumstances this virus throws your way, whether it's being kind to your customers, being kind to your employees, being, uh, you know, kind to your teammates, being kind to your family. It's very stressful. And it's, I think it's amazingly easy to take this out on other people. So I'm very, you know, and I borrowed this, the Smashburger team talks about being kind mm-hmm. and they're, and they're taking it to a different level in everything they do. I think patience um, is also a key virtue through this. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes it's the patience to patience to act, uh, to wait to act. And sometimes it's the patience not to act at all. Um, you know, Smashburger is thriving, honestly, mm-hmm. because of some really interesting you know, new avenues of revenue that they generated, as well as a focus on off-premise. Um, so, so they're great. On the other end, you know, Tom's Urban, Tom's Watch Bar sit in um, areas where, you know, communal sporting events happen and communal watching events happen. And, you know, um, the kindness there is not to open because we really don't want to give people, mm-hmm. you know, the occasion to be involved in that because it just makes sense in the long term. So, I think I, I think kindness and patience, mm-hmm. um, and 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 by patience is another factor to that which is perseverance. I think this will be over at some point in time, but I think those who who are smart about it steer through it with patience and kindness are going to win on the other side. Wow. You know you are listening to Secrets to Win Big with Arjun Sen, and today my VIP guest is Tom Ryan, founder of Smashburger Restaurants. And again, the three words to describe him are new product magician. Few things that Tom said in the last few minutes, and if you're just signing in late, are the three words that Tom talked about is not in his dictionary. And I really think those are very important at the beginning of a leader's journey to take these out totally is being mediocre, seeking consensus, and blunting each other. 
because I think that becomes a survival mindset in the middle of the pack. If you say and outrun one more animal in your pack, you survive that day, but that doesn't make you the king of those group. And I really also feel that, Tom, this was such a great advice because all of us are really panicking at, or most of us are panicking during current times about what he talked about being kind and being patient. So one thing I want to look at is that, you know, most business leaders, especially when either their incentives or short-term success, you know, everything is connected to their short-term success. They focus so much of the short-term success, it takes you into a dead end and then the brand gets stuck. How do you balance short-term and long-term success? Like this was a question I really was planning to know from you because looking at Lover's Line to some of these which have yeah. sustained was a lot of things came and went. So how do you see the blend of short-term and long-term success? Yeah, so, so look, at the end of the day, you know, successful companies have, have um, you know, vital sustaining growth. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I think part of the mindset that helps you get to those, um, those long-term wins, and I'll come back to short-term in a minute, is, is that I, I've always viewed the brands I work for as signing up to, to write the next chapter in a book. Mm -hmm. Because brands have history, brands have legacy, and quite frankly, equity begets equity, and lack of equity does the same thing. So I think the moves brands make as part of a long-term brand, usually the bigger brands, they basically have a long-term consequence of trust and belief. Um, and so I think building products with great attributes, strong promises that motivate people, and then fulfillment of those promises through the product that actually are better than the promise, mm -hmm. that's the key. And you can get to that, but it, it requires patience. And almost everything I can think of that took a long time or, or was very successful took longer than the prevailing pressures of the business did. Mm -hmm. So what you have in the meantime is promotions. And I think promotional products, which you can do without as much homework um, to basically test the waters and see how things go. They provide, you know, it's, it's kind of news for news sake. They provide short-term news. You design them so that you, do, you never hurt or damage the reputation of the brand, but they're not necessarily built for enduring value. And I think in my world in restaurants, what you need is a balance of those two things because sometimes, no matter how much homework you do, um, promotional items can be more popular than you think, and so they last. Mm -hmm. So it's a great way to get out there, interact with consumers, see some things in real time. But I do think that when you look at the core products, at least the ones I've worked on, McGriddles and Pepperoni Lovers and Stuffed Crust Pizza, those all have in their name something that you have to deliver on in a way that nobody delivered on it before. Mm -hmm. And I think if you get that homework done, you market it effectively and well and own it, it will be with you for a long time. Thank you, Tom. That was really fascinating, but we are not done yet because Tom will be back in the next episode to share more. He will switch gears and talk on a very personal level where he'll share his sources of inspiration, the secrets of work-life balance, how he has achieved this all his career. And finally, Tom in 2020 will give advice to the kiddo Tom Ryan graduating fresh from his PhD program. That part will be really fascinating, especially for those of us who are in the early phases of our career. Tom, thank you again, and I'm personally looking forward to hearing more from you. 
Thank you for listening to Secrets to Win Big with Arjun Sen. Please subscribe, share, and review on Apple Podcast, Google Play, or you can go to zenmango.com, zen, Z-E-N, mango.com, and choose your favorite site or app to listen to podcasts. Thank you and enjoy listening. You've been listening to Secrets to Win Big with Arjun Sen, founder and CEO of Zen Mango, brand whisperer, top brand growth driver, and a former Fortune 500 executive who has been called one of the most marketing intelligent minds in the business. To learn more, visit www.zenmango.com. Share this podcast with your friends and subscribe wherever you like to listen to podcasts. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.